0: So I'm sure if I kind of asked and took a poll of, the, of here of what your favorite season of the year is, I'm sure I would get probably a lot of different uh, answers. Uh, personally, mine is autumn. Um, I don't say it would always have been that way, but it, it is autumn now. Uh, and for those this morning that would be here that would say winter is my favorite, uh, I'm sorry for your disappointment this year. Uh, because we have been lacking in snow and lacking in cold. has been very unique for us this year as far as the the, the climate goes and the season of winter has gone. Um, and as you look at the seasons of, of the calendar, you know, winter, winter is marked as a long and a dreary season, it is a time of inner growth in trees and in plants. Springtime, which is right around the corner, is marked as a time of cleansing and restoration from the difficult days of winter. Soil is typically rotating and refreshing rains will come. It's a time of transition, and it's a time of pruning and regrowth. Then we kind of move into the season of summer. Summer is marked as a time of extreme dryness and heat. It's marked by a need for more water than usual, and it needs it to sustain strength and life. Top of the ground typically will get cracked from not having enough of it, and, and we can easily recognize that. Then we move into autumn, and autumn is marked as a time of harvest, a time of pruning and preparation for winter. It's a, a time when leaves will fall from its trees, and it's also a time of transition. And with that being said, we can say that God is the creator and the author and sustainer of our natural seasons, is he not? as we look to his word, we see examples of it. Genesis 1, verses 14 and 15, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs for seasons and for the days and the years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And so it was. The psalmist in Psalm 74, 17 says, you have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Also in the Psalms, four nineteen says, He made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows its time for its setting. Back to Genesis 8, verse 22. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So God is the orchestrator and ordainer of the natural seasons, but we can also say that he is the ordainer and the creator of the seasons of our lives as well. Unlike the natural seasons, which are they're somewhat predictable, we know when they're coming. We can see it out there. We know on the calendar when it's happening. The seasons in our lives sometimes come without warning and without permission. And the other thing is sometimes we don't know how long they're going to last. And I say, no, we're in them, and where did this come from, and how long is I'm going to be in this? And I thought about this topic this morning, I was thinking about, personally, the people that I know, family, friends, people in our church, uh, that are in many different seasons of life right now. And it's not uncommon, it has been this way since the creation of man, we are go through seasons of life. It's just a part of the natural order of who we are, and how things are. And the truth is that these seasons can be very complex, they can be challenging, Um, they can also provide opportunities as well. So as you look at the seasons of our life, God has put them all there, has orchestrated and ordained each one of them. So my hope this morning as we we talk about this and look at this, my hope this morning would be that we can look to God's word uh, for understanding of the seasons of our life. Help us prepare for when they do come. And help us to trust in the God who is sovereign over all the days of our life. So whatever season you may find yourself in this morning, uh, there is hope that God's word is there to encourage you. And it's also there to help strengthen your faith in him. So we'll be looking at uh, the book of Ecclesiastes uh, this morning. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles... And kind of a quick overview of the, of the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, the most classical view of the author is Solomon. He kind of gives reference to him, he refers to himself as the preacher throughout the book. But as you look at it, most would not disagree that it's, it's King Solomon. He would have reigned over the nation of all Israel and Jerusalem. So he, he was filled by that, and he had all the resources to fulfill the things he talked about. And the book has this feel of this public inquiry where here's this man attempting to work out what kind of life is worth living. And there's 12 chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes compiled by four kind of sub-sermons within that book. And the style of it is he goes back and forth with this understanding of positive and negative, negative and positive, back and forth within the book. And the first two chapters, the preacher looks at life from this perspective of unbelief. He references that man, us, doing things under the sun, which is outside of God. It's in a way of doing it in an unbelief apart from God. It's a life that does not factor in the eternal, divine perspective on things. It's also a life that lives by the limitations of our human horizons on the basis of only what we can experience in this world. The preacher questions that life is really a waste of time, something pointless, really without purpose. What is the point of life when our best efforts and achievements are all quickly just forgotten? Life's absurd, and our actions really don't have any real significance. The preacher explores the different ways that he thinks he can lead to true satisfaction. And we see this. He, he goes out and he tries education and he tries wisdom. Then he goes and he tries enjoyment and joy. Then he works hard and he toils and he gains as much as he can. And at the end of all that, he says, that it still left him lacking. And he realizes that when he does all of this, guess what? When he dies, someone else will get it. They will inherit it. And then what will they do with it? So he's left with this thing. I, I tried all this, and it's still not fulfilling me. But then we see a shift from man doing everything under the sun to at the end of chapter 2 and end of chapter 3, that all of a sudden God is brought into the picture and the perspective, and everything changes. The preacher is saying that everything is part of God's purpose and a plan. And immediately he has significance. Life has significance, which means life is filled with purpose and direction versus what he thought in the early chapters. So let's look at chapter 3, starting in verse 1. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. Verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is, a, is God's gift to man. And I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been... And that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of men that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of men and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust they all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man Goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lie. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So I have four points I'd like to kind of bring out this morning. The first is there is a perplexity that we see in the seasons of our life. Second point is there's the providence and the sovereignty of God in the seasons of our life. Third point is there is the judgment of God in the seasons of our life as well. And lastly, there is contentment that can be found in the seasons of the lives that we live. So, looking at verses 1 through 8, these are very popular Verses, by the way, these first eight verses. Uh, this section of scripture is spoken a lot at many funerals, and not believers' funerals, but non believers' funerals as well. Um, and it was even penned as a, it was done as a, a popular song in the 60s by a group called The Birds. And it was a song called Turn, Turn, Turn. And it was kind of written in a sense of when the whole Vietnam War was happening, almost in a resistance type of thing. And the song was very popularized, so these these sections of scripture was popularized secularly as well. And in a sense, it's beautiful poetry. These first eight verses are extreme beautiful poetry. Uh, There's there's symmetry, there's repetition, there's imagery in these verses. And you can see why some people would cling to them and want them spoken. But the non-believer reads this poetry of the preacher, and he conforms that Well, the world is just like me, just how I believe. It fits my worldview. They read the poem, and they see there is meaningless in life. See, these things will happen, and that's going to happen, this and that. And at the end, none of of it matters. And they believe that the preacher is just like them, this kind of secular, humanistic person. And that's not the case at all. See, he says, however, for the believer, the preacher is very different. And he tells us that in verse 1. He speaks of everything under heaven. So it's everything that's under God's reign and God's rule. He says, for God, um, even in verse chapter 5, verse 2, he says, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. He references the realm of God. And clearly the preacher is not just a secular humanist, but he holds to a biblical worldview, knowing that all things under heaven is what they were talking about in these first eight verses. So he's able to capture in these first verses an accurate vision of the life that we all live. We live in a fallen world. And so much so that even unbelievers find some kind of significance in it. Even if you would say, I don't have a relationship with God, you're going to find something in these verses that you're going to relate to because it's truth and it's reality that's there. These 14 verses communicate the total span and breadth of our life's experiences. First line marks that a person's life is from what? From birth to death. It spans the whole existence of our life, whatever those years may be. Then he continues describing all sorts of contradictory experiences that we go through in this life. We see examples of this in our lives, in our in our church here, in our families, in our friends that we know. It it does happen. We see new births. We just experienced new births within the last couple of weeks, right? But then on the other hand, we see the tragedy of people that we know, we care for to enter in to the end of life, the end, the end of these days. So there's just this drastic between life and death. We see joy and pain. We see excitement to grief, laughter to tears, gain to losses. He says that there is planting, then there's plucking, killing to healing breaking down and building up, mourning and dancing, war and peace. And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And we can find ourselves at one moment breaking out in excitement with such a mountaintop experience. Has anyone ever been there before? And at the next step, the next thing you know, you're in such a valley that depression and anxiety can just overtake your soul. And sometimes we can even experience this in the same day. Has anyone ever laughed and cried at the same time? So we have emotions, we have these things that are coming in our life, and it's happening. And if we're honest, we can say that we live in a fallen world, and it can be confusing and complicated. And at times, and I've said it, I'm sure we all have, God, what is the purpose in all this? What is the purpose of this season of my life right now? Well, however, it's helpful to remember It is just a season. It comes and it will go. And you know what? Another season will come as well. So it's not eternal. There are seasons that come and they go. And wisdom demands us to analyze our lives beyond just our current circumstances, just what we're in right at the moment. Wisdom tells us to look beyond that. So we don't know what each day is going to hold. We heard that this week. Tragedy happens like that. Mark and I were talking about that this morning, how quickly life can just change in a moment. And it can cause a lot of us to have stress because you worry about what's happening next. And indeed, as we consider the seasons of our lives, each one is unique, and they can be a bit perplexing. If there is a time for every matter under heaven, why? Why doesn't God just let us stay on the mountaintop? Why does... We, why do we need to go through the valleys? Because the seasons of life perplex us. It causes us at times to wrestle with the providence of God. As much as we know and we believe it's a doctrine that we hold to so tightly that we bank our life on it, there are times where we're perplexed by it, if we're honest. And it can cause us, but what does it cause us to look to him and it compels us to trust him more. I even think about Christ himself. Matthew 26, verses 39 and verse 42. I'll read this. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then in verse 42, he says again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. There was a providence over Christ's life. There was a sovereign purpose in Christ's coming. He was born to die. And even he wrestled in those moments of struggling of the cup that he had to bear. So we know that Christ in his humanity and divinity, if he struggled, well, we know we're going to struggle at times as well. But he gives us a hope and an example. So the first point is, there is a perplexity in trying to understand all these seasons of our life. Why are we in them? God, why I don't want to be in the valley right now. I'd rather be on the mountaintop. But God is doing something in that, and it's not wrong to say that we're perplexed, but we need to go to Him. So that's the first point. Second point is, we do see the sovereignty and the providence of God in the seasons of our life. And he shows that in verses 9 through 15. So, at first, we're pulled into this this perplexity of seeing all these different things that happen in our life, the uncommon changes, the things that are taking place. But then here the preacher shifts, and he says in verse nine, "What gain has the worker from his toil?" This is a question really. The unbeliever reading this never really asks himself. To him, life is a series of seasons and experiences, and then he just dies, right? Yet the preacher isn't content with that answer. The secular man considers death simply a stage of growth, something we must make our peace with. But death, as we know, is our great enemy, is it not? And saying that death is just a peaceful transition into a final stage of growth is totally absurd. Because we know, as we sang about it and prayed about it and talked about it this morning, that death is real. And what waits the other side of that is something that we need to be prepared for. It's like telling a person in a marriage that, well, you know what, a divorcee, that divorce is just a stage of your marriage. Who would say that? That is absurd. And that is not what God is telling us our life is to be. So as we live under the shadow of the inevitable, which is our lives will be given away, we will die. What is the purpose of this life? And see, we will occupy ourselves over our lives with business, business, work, family, friends, activities. All these things uh, will happen in our life. And if we just contemplate on all these things and try to figure out what is the purpose of life and all this, it can leave us confused and at times frustrated. But he goes on and the, the preacher says in verse 11, but he has put eternity in the man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I don't know about you, but aren't there times where you just you long for answers? You long to know what this all means. There's a desire that you want to know more. God has built in each one of us the reality of eternity. We are people who have desires and want to know, and that's not wrong. A part of being made in God's image means that we have these yearnings for truth and we desire to experience truth's satisfaction. C.S. Lewis says that we were born for another world. We were created and born for eternity to be with God. So we can't help but long for life after death, for meaning in the seasons of life. What's going on here? Yet, as creatures, we are created ones, we can't always know what God is doing, can we? We try, try to discern it, we pray, and he gives us truth, we know we have his word, but we can't always know exactly what he's doing. See, the absolute of God's sovereignty comes into clear view as we look at verse 14 and 15. Solomon says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. The preacher recognized God's absolute power in governing our lives and understands that God's will will not be frustrated. It cannot be. He says what God does endures forever, for all eternity. So when we speak of the sovereignty of God, and we talk about that a lot, God's sovereignty, his providence, what we're referring to is the absolute power and authority. So absolute power, absolute authority to govern over all creation and the full cosmos. That's what his sovereignty is. With him... The providence part, knowing the perfect purpose in every situation. So that's providence. He has the power and authority to do anything he desires to, and he will do it with a perfect purpose in every situation. So that's what we see as we look at the seasons of our life. There's a sovereign God at work, and he is doing something that is perfect in every purpose. Whether I see it or not, it's happening. But yet, we're honest and say, but in the practical day-to-day, I don't see it sometimes. There can be a veil. It's not wrong to say that. I think as people, we need to admit there are times where, you know what? The purposes of God in my life, is veiled. I don't quite get it. And guess what? It won't take God by surprise. And because we are limited... We are limited in our perspective as a creature. He says in verse 11 that I cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He has revealed what he needs to reveal to us for our good and our purpose. And there are some things that belong to God. And though we put eternity in our hearts, there are some things that they belong to him. And we need to trust that. So being made as people in his image and longing for answers to purpose, and being creatures that are created and don't understand everything, I was reminded of how glorious the gift of God's word is. Because he has chosen, through the pages of his word, to reveal himself to us. He's revealed his nature and his character, his redemptive purpose, who he is and who Christ is, and he's given us these pages, and it's been a glorious gift that we can sit there and say, We have God's written word today. Because without it, we would be hopeless people wandering around trying to find answers under the sun. Yet, it's not, that's not the case for us. Another piece of God's sovereignty that should be created in us as believers is humility. Look at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever, nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. And God has done so that people will fear before him. People should fear before him. Does my life, and I was praying this, God, does my life demonstrate a man that is humble? Do I reflect a man that is humble before the creator of all things today? See, the right position is knowing who I am in reference to who he is. And that changes everything. He has graciously revealed himself to me, and I need to rely on the one who has all the understanding and not me. Not my understanding. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 says, to trust in the Lord with all your heart and not lean on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, there's that word again, and turn away from evil, and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. When we acknowledge him in the seasons of our life and the struggles we may be dealing with, that promise is there that it will be healing for my flesh and a refreshment for my bones. Something happens when I acknowledge him and to position he is next to where my position needs to be. So I come back again, and I say, well, we may ask in our seasons of life, why, again, and we will not always understand. But remember, God's providentially working is good news, is it not? We can sit there and say it's more, it is good news, because it means that all our lives have purpose, Every joy, every tear, every celebration, every sorrow, every victory, and every defeat. And though I may be confused about the season I may be in, I can say, what is God doing in that? And our sovereign God is completing and accomplishing his purpose behind the scenes. I love what he says in verse 11. He He has made everything beautiful in his time. There's a perfect timing. As we look at seasons and timings, God is making something perfect right in the midst of that. See, the, pre- the preacher finds comfort in God's providential working because he has recognized that at the end of his days, when death may come, and it will, it will you be found in the sovereign God of the universe, or you will be found by the one who is just trying to find meaning on his own, apart from God. And I just want to consider a challenge out there. If there's anyone here this morning, anyone here today that says, you know what? No, I have not trusted in the sovereign purpose of God today. I would not say that I had turned and looked upon Christ and put trust in the completed work that he is. God says to turn from that and trust in him. Stop trying to spend so much energy getting things from under the sun and look at God. So that's our call is to turn to Christ. Third point that we see this morning is the judgment of God in the seasons of our life. Verses 16 through 22. We may ask the question, why does God permit this injustice in the world? I've said it. I mean, my heart says that at times. Why, if this sovereign God, does he allow wickedness to flourish, even in righteous places? Verse 16 highlights this. He says, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there there was wickedness. See, the courts of human justice are never absolute. They can be and they are corrupted by sin. While we ought to work and pray for justice in our legislation and our judicial systems, we often find that the laws of Congress or the verdicts of the court kind of leave, it, leave us inadequate. It does. There's even times in the church, even times in the church, sadly say, with an assembly of God's people, that there could be wickedness and the effects of sin that leads to injustice. And as a part of the depravity and the brokenness of man, See, we see in a world today so many extreme examples of injustice. I just listed a few. There's a sexual abuse crisis. We see human trafficking. There's racial injustice. There's abortion, economic disparity, human right issues, which we see in Afghanistan and other places around the world, the persecution of God's people, persecution of the church, and many, many more. And that's just the top of the list. And there's something to be said to be burdened about these things. And for myself, I find the cause of injustice where I'm inevitably hitting my head against a wall and saying, I know that there seems to be good and needful progress is happening, but just this just still seems to be absent. And that's the reality of what we're living in today. But we do well to remember that there is a God of justice who brings judgment upon humanity. If we think justice can only come through the political system and at the end of a national platform, we will be irritated and disappointed. I will be because I am setting up expectations that are not going to happen. And I don't know if you're like me. Whenever I set expectations up, I'm always disappointed and as Christians, we should concern ourselves with the matter of justice because God is just and he is righteous. And we are called to be in his image. Yet we know that absolute justice will not come until God pronounces his final judgments on all the souls of men. See, we experience injustice in the seasons of our life. We're in this season, and we're seeing it, and we're experiencing it. And some of us have experienced it in many different levels than others have. We see it, and it's there, and it's real. And he emphasized in the verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So we can say this morning that as hard as it is to see certain things, that our God will handle justice according to his Sovereignty to his providence, his perfect plan, and all that. And we can trust in that. The Lord will judge the wicked. And when we groan with creation about the fallenness of the world, we would be wise to remember that justice will come. And that's a hope for us, that's something that we can be hopeful in. So again, the question comes up, why? Why does God want us to wrestle with this question? Do you wrestle with this question? I don't know. Why does he exercise his providence in this way? Why does God want us to long for eternity and ask these questions of why? Why does he want us to lament over injustice and the sin of humanity? Well, the preacher says in, Verse 18 through 20, he says that in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they are themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts for all his vanity. And all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust they shall all return. Death should humble us. That reality should humble us and make us think. He reminds us that we are all creatures, and about how limited we are of his understanding, and how little we are in the perspective that we demand answers these questions. In a similar way, Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans, he said in verse 9, verse 20, when he was dealing with the mystery of election and God's purpose, he says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Can't fully understand the mind of God. He's told us he's doing all things for his glory. But we don't know the specifics and how he's working that out in the seasons of our life. But we should wrestle with that. We should wrestle to a point where we're asking and we should be broken about the things that are around us and not questioning God because we are the mold. He is the potter and we are the one that is molded. So this message that comes across in Ecclesiastes is not that good things and bad things happen to us. So you know what? Just grit your teeth, roll up your sleeves, just bear with it and endure. And you know what? The other thing is, uh, we're not victims uh, of this this chaotic world because that's not a reality as well. We are in relationship with a good and a gracious God who rules over time, accomplishing all his purposes, ensuring that righteous triumphs in the end. Because he is sovereign, he reigns over everything. And I can relinquish the control of my life. I think that's a big piece of it. We struggle because we want control, do we not? Even in the years I've been walking with the Lord, it comes up and I have to go before God again and say, God, I'm trying to take control and that's not where I need to be. I can rest in his wisdom to make everything beautiful in its time. And I want to be humbled by my mortality. That should humble me, knowing that I'm a created being next to an infinite God who has been forever existed. And he has goodness and purpose in everything that he does. So within the shadow of death, and existence, it puts our lives in perspective. And true wisdom, and we pray this often, that God would give us wisdom, right? True wisdom is not having all the answers. Solomon prayed for wisdom. God poured it out in him abundantly. But what he didn't realize is, it's not about having all the answers, but resting in the one who does. So if we want true wisdom, We need to say, I'm going to look and trust in the one that has all the answers. That is perfect. That's walking in true wisdom. And the more that we live our lives in recognition that God will have the victory and that he will have the final say, that will encourage us to continue on in the season that he currently has you in. So... We see the judgment that will take place, and it's going to take place inevitably, and we see a desire for judgment to happen in our current season of life, and we wrestle with that, and we have to give that back to the sovereign God. And the last point I want to make this morning is we can have contentment in our seasons of life. Verses 12 and 13, he says, I have perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good and long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is a gift. This is God's gift to man. Then he says in verse 22, at the end of that chapter, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Whatever season we're in this morning, there's this understanding that we can be content in that, that we can enjoy the life that God has given us. We work, we toil, we eat, we drink. There can be a contentment in that. And we enjoy the gifts that God gives us. And even as we seek to do good, because the Bible says as God gives to us, we are to give that back and do good to others. So there's a contentment that God can pour out in our lives. Now, you might be in a season this morning where it's a real struggle. I get that. Um, And to be honest, you might just say, I'm really having it hard to say that this current life I'm in is a gift from God. There's many of us that are in that place that we know may be in that place this morning. that are here. And that's a, a truth and a reality. And you may have doubts and you may have questions, and your longing, and these longings scream the loudest in your soul. Well, the good news is that faith in Christ gives us the strength to both live and to die, to live this life and have a hope in what is to come. We don't need to make peace with death as the unbeliever does. Um, Christ has conquered that. And my encouragement this morning would be if you're in a hard season of life right now, uh, look to him because he can sustain, help you, strengthen you, get beyond what you're at because it is a season. This season that you're in will leave and another season will come. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 2 says that there is a time to be born and a time to die. Sometimes we go through certain scenes of our life where we just say, I just want this season to be here, I just want to die. People have said that. What a hopeless place to get to. And the writer says that there is a season for all things, a season, a time to be born, and a time to die. And that is a season, as he said in verse 1, the expansion of life to death. But the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So for us, the reality is that on the other side of death, there is judgment. There's something coming. Are we prepared for that? Are you prepared for that? My hope and my prayer is most of us here are. But we have the opportunity to interact with many people who are not. We have family members. I know we pray often for loved ones that we know that have not come to receive and believe in the gift of salvation, which comes in Christ alone. And that grieves our heart. We're in seasons where we're separated and we're broken, and it's hard. And yet God compels us and says to trust and to rely on him. He's sovereign. He's perfect. He's working something out we just can't quite see. There is a veil there to a degree, but we can trust him. We also look when I first start out this morning about the natural seasons of life. Romans one, verse 20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, into things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So what that says, that as you interact with people, guess what? Even creation itself cries out and bears the existence of God Almighty. It shows it in the stars and in the creation that there is none without excuse. The writer says that he's put eternity in every man's heart. There's a degree of us knowing. So as you interact with family and friends, pray that God will reveal that reality and that truth to them for his glory for his namesake, and for the advancement of the kingdom, that God would do that work in these people that we know that we love. And if you're sitting here this morning and saying, yeah, that's me, and maybe God is tapping on your soul today to look at this reality, today is a day of salvation, the word of God says. So if he calls you, look to him and trust in that. Seasons of life are very difficult. And we can all testify to extreme hard ones we have all walked out. And we could probably all share and get an encouragement for one another as well. And the truth is, we'll continue to walk out hard seasons as long as we're in this life. As long as God tarries and does not return call us home into his glory, we will go through different seasons of life. Came across a quote from John Owens. He was the Puritan preacher, and he says, um, well, he had to bury his first wife and all his children over his lifetime. Several of them, he had he a had, he had dotted in infancy. And he quotes by saying, Die, then thou frail and sinful flesh, dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Rest therefore in hope, for God in his appointed season when he shall have a desire unto the work of his hands, will call unto thee, and thou shalt answer him out of the dust. Then shall he, by an act of his almighty power, not only restore thee unto the pristine glory as at the first creation, but enrich and adorn thee with inconceivable privileges and advantages. Be not then afraid, away with all reluctance, go into the dust, resort in hope, for thou shalt stand in thy lot at the end of the days. What a glorious picture that God will reestablish us to the perfect creation of Adam before the curse affected us all. I pray today that we can walk humbly before God, trusting his wisdom Enjoying each day is a gift. And the main point as I say that, because it's not about the gifts. Right? The gifts are great. The enjoyment is fine. We can have contentment. There are all those externals. But what's the real truth in it all? That we get the giver. That's the difference. The gifts are great. They're a blessing. Sometimes they come, sometimes they go. But, oh, church, we've gotten the giver, and we have a relationship with him. And if I could say one thing against the preacher, he talked about we're no different than the beasts, or we're a lot different than the beasts because we have been created to be image bearers of the living God, and the beasts will die and they will return to the dust. But for us who have put our hope and our trust in the king of all glory, his spirit has came to live in us, and we are so much greater than the beasts because we are now his children, adopted because of Christ. And that is good news regardless of what season you're in right now. Let's pray. Our Father, um, I thank you for the tidbits and the small things in your word that can encourage us. Thank you for giving us your word today. I thank you for encouraging us that we are people who go through different seasons of life. Some are better than others. We admit that today. We admit today, God, that we're sometimes perplexed by why we're in certain seasons but I thank you by your Spirit, you help us and you call us to trust in you, the sovereign, perfect God who makes all things beautiful in his time. I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning, whatever season they, they may find themselves in, they don't find them in that season alone, that you are right there with them and you are doing something purposeful and perfect in the midst of it. May you encourage our souls today with the reality of heaven. May we glean from even the words of John Owen that we will be made right and new as again as it was in the day of Adam, that we will have glorified bodies that will stand and worship before the King and the God of all things. May you flood our our souls and our hearts with that eternal beauty today and God by your spirit would you challenge us in areas where we need to be challenged for those who may be sitting here who would say I can't say that I've ever trusted in the sovereign work of God God would you do work in their souls as well today Lord thank you for your freedom today thank you for the that we can come and gather in this place and worship you you deserve all our worship and our adoration today. May you be glorified. May we be encouraged and transformed because we've been in your presence today. And I pray and ask this in Christ's name, amen.